Well, hello. In fact, let's try to say uh, aloha. Aloha. That's, that's wonderful. Thank you. And Kristen, <laughs> well, uh, uh, Kristen, thank you for that prayer. Uh, that was, uh, I really appreciate it. And I guess, uh, coincidentally, Kristen prayed for me yesterday. I guess she didn't uh, do as well as she needed to, so we gave her another chance today. So that, that was a good prayer. We'll see. We'll talk about tomorrow. Anyway, uh, I am so happy to be with you. And uh, just, I love this topic. I love talking about Isaiah. It's a little hard to see with these bright lights, but uh, this would be helpful for me. Can I just get a feeling for, uh, I, I want to ask two questions. How many of you were, by raising hand, how many of you were here yesterday uh, when we did Isaiah? So a number of people, but not everyone. Here's another question. How many of you were um, at my lectures on Monday where we talked about Hezekiah? Okay, so you're going to get a little bit of repeat, but, but a lot of new stuff. Um, but it's helpful to know we have enough people that I want to just kind of review a few things uh, for you today. And I'll, I'll introduce myself. My name is Kerry Milstein. I'm a professor of uh, ancient scripture here at BYU. Uh, I've been teaching uh, Old Testament here. My first time to teach as actually uh, part-time was in 1994, so it's a little while ago. And uh, I've been teaching Isaiah ever since and for the last, like, five, six years, something. I, I, I teach a lot of classes just on Isaiah, where we do the whole semester on Isaiah. Uh, and that has been a fun and fantastic experience for me. I love, love seeing the light bulbs come on in my students' minds as they start to understand Isaiah. Um, most of them are there because they really want to and they feel like they haven't been able to. And so that's what I'm hoping we can accomplish with everyone here. Uh, we're about to hit Isaiah and come follow me writings or studying, right? Our, our uh, I think it's the Second week of September, first week of September, somewhere in there. So we're just a few weeks away, and we spent, I think, five weeks on it. Uh, and that's just exciting. I, I feel like we're in a good position to understand Isaiah like we never have before. We've got kind of spiritual momentum, as it were, uh, to, to talk about, uh, you know, to use some of President Nelson's uh, words. We've been really into the Old Testament, I think, more than ever before, and I hope that we can uh, learn not just to, to learn from Isaiah, but learn to love Isaiah. And uh, so it's my goal to help us with that a little bit. And we're just going to go through a couple of those steps today. We've got two more days where we'll keep doing this and go through other steps on, on those other days. Um, so we'll just remind ourselves why we should be doing this. And one of the reasons is that the Savior says, A commandment I give unto you, that ye search these things diligently, for great are the words of Isaiah. Right? And we really don't need a lot more motivation than that. Uh, there's plenty more, but, but that's, that's pretty good motivation. Um, Nephi also says, I write more of the words of Isaiah, for my soul delighteth in his words. And that's my goal, is that you'll say the same thing, that you delight in Isaiah by the time we're done. Um, and, and Nephi also says this, Now I write some of the words of Isaiah, that whoso of my people shall see these words may lift up their hearts and rejoice for all men. Uh, that's what we want, is to rejoice as we read Isaiah, both because we understand Isaiah and because as we understand him, we understand what he's saying will happen for all of mankind, and we rejoice in it. That's, that's our goal. All right, the question is, and, and for those of you who were with me yesterday, we, this first like minute, uh, this next minute's going to be about the same as last time. Is it going to be easy? And no, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some work, right? Uh, Nephi says, I do speak somewhat concerning the words which I have written, which have been spoken by the mouth of Isaiah. For behold, Isaiah spake many things which were hard for many of my people to understand. Right? And they were fairly close to contemporary with Isaiah, only about a hundred and few more than a hundred years after Isaiah. Uh, we're a bit more than that. Right? We're about 2,500 years after Isaiah. So, um, uh, but, but we can do this, all right? So what are the answers? Yesterday we went through and looked at a lot of the keys that Nephi gives us as to how to understand Isaiah. And we started down that path yesterday. Yesterday we looked at um, symbols and uh, some other things that uh, are how to look at, understand symbols and imagery um, as we try to figure out how to understand Isaiah. We're going to keep going down that path today. Uh, one of the things that I really suggest is that we slow down. Um, we're just going to, as you study Isaiah, you're just going to want to take the time to, to try and understand what he's saying. Uh, in fact, uh, I'll tell you the first time I felt like I was understanding Isaiah and, and really getting a lot out of him on my mission, I, I sat down one time with three translations of Isaiah. And I'd read one, and I'd ask, how does this, does this apply to Isaiah's day? Oh, I'll, I have to tell the story again tomorrow when we talk about dual fulfillments. But anyway, um, 
uh, how, how did this work in Isaiah's day? And then I read another translation and I said, how does this work for Israelites today? And then a, a third translation say, how does this apply to me? And I found I could get something out of all of them, but, but some of it was just because I was spending a lot of time on each verse. And as I, the more I thought about it, the more it yielded to me. And so that's what we want to do is, is put in some time to understanding Isaiah. Uh, and, and we'll find that we, we love Isaiah. Now, we're going to look at some of the clues that, that Nephi gave us. As I said, we, we looked at some yesterday. We'll look at some tomorrow and some the next day. But uh, some of the clues that Nephi gave us as to how we can better understand Isaiah. And he said that his people couldn't understand Isaiah before they know not concerning the manner of prophesying among the Jews. And he also said there's none other people that understand the, uh, the things which were spoken unto the Jews like unto them, save it be that they are taught after the manner of the things of the Jews. All right, so... Some of that is the symbolism and the imagery that we talked about yesterday. Um, but there's some other things that we should know about uh, that are the ways that the Jews prophesied, and Isaiah kind of sits at the apex of that prophetic uh, writing ability. Um, so these are some of the things that we talked about yesterday. Poetry, that's what we're going to spend a lot of time on here in just a minute. Um, symbolism, that's what we spoke about yesterday quite a bit. Multiple fulfillments is what we'll spend a lot of time on tomorrow. Uh, what we call prophetic past tense, the fact that, that Isaiah kind of jumps around in time because for him it's all already happened and he keeps seeing the same cycle happening over and over again. We'll talk about that quite a bit on Friday. Uh, and the way that Isaiah mixes his words with the Lord's words because they seem like they're the same to them. Uh, so we're going to, especially today though, uh, talk about poetry. Um, we're going to also spend some time on something else today. Um, Isaiah, or Nephi says that you can understand Isaiah if you know the judgments of God which have come to pass among the Jews. Uh, he's, he's teaching those things unto my children according to all that which Isaiah has spoken, and I do not write them. So in other words, uh, you have to understand God's covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the, uh, the history of God's interaction with his people. And so today we're going to talk about history. Friday we'll talk about the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Isaiah. We'll cover both those topics, try and understand both that covenant a little bit better, and then you'll see how it revolutionizes your ability to understand Isaiah. Uh, but today we're going to talk about uh, history. So these are the different things we put up, the list we put up yesterday, but there are a number of you who weren't here. So uh, about the uh, manner of uh, prophesying, geography and topography, we talked about that a bit yesterday. Customs and culture, we talked a little bit about it yesterday. We kind of fit that in all over the places we go. History and Covenant, um, and today we're going to do history. So uh, those are the two things we're going to do today, and we're going to start out by talking about the manner of prophesying, and in particular, we're going to talk about poetry. But let's talk about a couple of things, all right? So uh, as we study Isaiah, there are a few language uh, challenges or hurdles that we have to, to get over, all right? One of them is that he wrote in Hebrew, and he wrote great poetry, and poetry never works as perfectly in translation. Um, and, and so, for that, I would just recommend either uh, find some commentaries that would help you with that, or uh, I'll tell you a website that I think is actually really great. Um, it's called netbible.org. I'm not associated with them at all. It's a, another Christian group. Uh, they, they have their own translation, but on netbible.org, you can also get on there, and they, there's a, a line where you click, and it'll show you either their translation, or like you can get five translations all at once on one side and Hebrew on the other side and you can click on a word in English and it will highlight the word in Hebrew. You can click on that and it'll bring up its definition and things like that. And they've got a commentary on there that we'll talk about some of the things you can learn from the Hebrew. So, uh, but, but Hebrew, unless you're going to study Hebrew, this is, and even if you know Hebrew a little bit, Isaiah's taught. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a language hurdle that probably commentary is your, your easiest way to get over. Um, we also have uh, the King James Version, uh, their English that is not easy for us. Now, I'm not saying this in a bad way. I love the King James Version, and I think that they preserve uh, better than any translation I've ever read the poetic power of Isaiah. They were masterful translators and writers, and they preserve that poetic power better than any other translation I've read. But it's still a little foreign to us that it's, it's, it's tricky, all right? It's, it's uh, both Isaiah and the King James translators spoke in a really high register of language. Right, so we've got kind of modern-day slang, right, the way that we usually talk, and then when we write, it's a little more formal, and you might get legalese, it's a little more formal than that. They are writing, both Isaiah in Hebrew and the King James translators in English are giving us the highest register of language. So um, 
I, I, oh, this is out of order. This is where I love that the King James Version preserves that poetic power. Just to give you an idea of uh, the high register of language, um, and fortunately, I actually think it's a great blessing to us as members of the church that we grow up using the King James Version. Because it does two things. Since we start reading it when we're young, it helps us learn English better. Now, I guess you didn't start reading it when you were young if English is not your native language, but, but for those who are, it, it helps you learn English better. And it makes it, because we start reading it when we're young, it makes it so it, it's not as foreign to us. We, we can intuit it better than most people, all right? But to just to give us an idea and to wake you up, uh, uh, we're gonna do an exercise. I'm going to put up here a nursery rhyme that is in a very high register of language, mostly scientific jargon, but very high register of language. And when you know, don't, don't blurt it out, but when you know what nursery rhyme this is, then I just want you to raise your hand. And after we get a bunch of hands raised, and I have to go like this, be able to see it. But um, uh, after we get a bunch of hands raised, then we'll give it away. Okay, so here is the, 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 the nursery rhyme. So start reading it and tell me when you recognize what nursery rhyme this is. We're giving a few hands. Those of you who got it earlier are going to pay a price and have to leave your hand up for a little while. Getting a few hands, I'll wait just a second more. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this away now, but there's, uh, there's a female homo sapien, so it's a little girl, her name happens to be Mary. And uh, she possesses a small immature ruminant of the genus Scopus, or in other words, a lamb. And it has an outermost covering, or a coat, which reflects all wavelengths of visible light, which is white, with luminosity equal to that of a massive, naturally occurring microscopically microscopically crystalline water, or it's white as snow, right? And whichever way Mary goes, the land is sure to fall, right? So that's, that's one. We'll do one more of these. I think this one's just a little bit easier. So when you know what this one is, raise your hand.
So synecdoche is when you have a part representing the whole, such as all hands on deck. Isaiah uses this all the time. Uh, all the time. You just kind of have to recognize and, and become a little bit familiar with his, uh, both his manner of doing it and with his world to be able to recognize it. So I'll just give you a couple of examples, all right? He uses Zion. Zion is actually the name of a hill in Jerusalem. So he uses the hill to represent the whole city of Jerusalem. But he uses the city of Jerusalem to represent all of Judah, or sometimes all of the covenant people. So he'll talk about Zion, or he'll talk about Jerusalem as a way of referring to Judah or covenant people. All right? He'll talk about the daughters of Zion as a way of representing all of the people who are covenant people. And he uses the daughters of Zion typically to say, look, here are the very best among us. I can sometimes just say, but look how far they've fallen. But if the best have fallen that far, think how much everyone else has fallen. That's kind of what he's saying. But he uses daughter of Zion quite a bit to represent all of the people of Zion, or all of the covenant people. Uh, he'll use the tribe of Ephraim to represent all of the northern kingdom, or the kingdom of Israel. Right? And sometimes he'll use just the king, or he'll use Samaria, which is their capital. Just like he's using Jerusalem, which is the capital to represent all of Judah. Uh, or Rezin, Remaliah's son, that's the king, right? Um, uh, of, of, uh, of Syria, or he'll use Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, to represent all of Syria, uh, and, and, and so on, right? So uh, those are just some examples, but he does this all the time. He'll just take one element of a larger group and use that to represent the whole group. Uh, and so just keep that in mind. I put up, I think, probably the most common ones here, uh, and, and if you keep these ones in mind, you'll understand a little bit better what he's saying. So now we're going to have a quiz, all right? I'm just warning you ahead of time, this is a trick question. But, but here's our quiz. Uh, when Isaiah says that God's hand is stretched out still, is this synecdoche or matana? So don't answer this question. Just think to yourself, is this synecdoche or matana? It's a trick question because it's not either one. Uh, <laughs> it is, it's just symbolism, all right? Uh, it's, it's symbolism, and we're, uh, but I really put this up here to take an opportunity to uh, do some myth-busting. Uh, and many of you won't be happy with this, but I'm just going to tell you that there's this rumor going around, many members of the church, that whenever you read the phrase, God's hand is stretched out still, it's a way of saying that he's still extending mercy, which is just wrong. Uh, so, in fact, it's, it's a symbol, it's pretty close to synecdoche, but it's a symbol. And it's a symbol that is used all throughout the ancient Near East. Having your hand or your arm stretched out is a symbol for being busy doing something. In fact, for those of you who are with me in, in the, my last lecture on uh, stuff in the book of Abraham, we talked about Abraham's life, we talked about determinatives in the Egyptian language, all right? Where you have a, a word and then you have a symbol behind it that doesn't have a phonetic value or a translation value. It just tells you what kind of a word it is. One of the most common uh, um, determinatives is an arm holding something. And it means that this is an action verb. Because that's the symbol in the ancient world. If your arm is stretched out, you're still doing whatever it is you were doing. All right? And that's exactly how this phrase is used in Isaiah. When he says his hand is stretched out still, he means I'm, I'm not done. Whatever it was I was just talking about that I'm doing, I'm not done doing it. I've got more that I'm going to do. And then he usually goes on to talk about the more that he's going to do. And at one time, I can think of it maybe more, but I can think of one time where he says he's extending mercy and my hand is stretched out still, and then he talks about continuing to extend mercy. So I can think of one time where it's about mercy. Most of the time, it's actually punishment. He says, I've been punishing you, and my hand is stretched out still. I've still got more punishment I'm bringing on you. And somehow we've switched that to say, nope, it's just a little mercy now. The mercy always comes, so let's be clear about that. And Isaiah, Isaiah always holds up both justice or judgment and mercy, the purpose, of the, the purpose of the justice of judgment is always to humble people, to get them to keep the covenant again. We'll talk more about that on Friday when we do the covenant. Um, and, and, and as soon as they do humble themselves, or they're forced to be humble, then he extends mercy to them. So it is a pair, and you'll find that Isaiah frequently, if you'll have long passages of judgment where he's talking about all the bad things that are going to happen if they don't repent, but he never, well, I shouldn't say never, but I can't think of any times where he talks about um, all of the, uh, has a long passage on judgment where he does it somewhere in the middle, hold out a little hope and say, but don't worry for the righteous, it'll be good. And the same thing happens when he's having long passages of joy and rejoicing and hope. 
somewhere in the middle it'll say, except for, for the weekend, not going to be so good for them. And then he continues on with the joy and rejoicing. So it's not surprising that we've gotten that a little bit mixed up, but I want to be very clear. When you read the phrase, his hand is stretched out still, look and see what he was talking about that he was already doing and know that he's saying, I've got more of that that's going to come. And most of the time, that's more judgment. Um, sorry to ruin your favorite passage. But anyway, um, but we've just got to get this right. Okay, uh, personification is another a poetic device that uh, is used a lot, and here's just an example. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you in singing, and all the trees and fields shall clap their hands. Right? Obviously, mountains, hills don't sing, and, and field trees don't clap, but that is personifying them uh, to create an image. That's something we talked about uh, yesterday as well, this imagery that he likes to create to help us to feel something. Um, he uses metaphors and similes a lot. Uh, so, for example, the Song of the Vineyard is in chapter 5 where he compares Judah to a vineyard that goes wild and so he's not going to take care of it anymore. Right? That's, that's a, a metaphor that then becomes a simile, actually. But anyway, um, so those are all poetic devices that we're familiar with, um, and, and he uses a lot more. This is the one that we're less familiar with, and I'm just out of curiosity, how many of you have heard of Hebrew parallelism? So a number of people, very good. This is probably the most common uh, Hebrew poetic device. It's one that, once you recognize it, it's actually pretty easy to recognize, and it can help you get a, a little bit, uh, gain some nuanced meaning by recognizing it, but some of its purposes are accomplished even if you don't recognize it. So we'll talk about what it is and how that happens, but, but when you do recognize it, there are nuances of meaning that can come out for you, and I'll show you some examples. So, Isaiah loves parallelism. He employs it over 1,000 times in his chapters, so that's a lot, right? And as you start to recognize it, it it'll just give you some added depth of meaning. Uh, so this, some guy named Karen Milstein wrote this about Isaiah. Um, parallelism is when words, phrases, or ideas are used in tandem with each other to add emphasis and to clarify meaning. So there's a certain amount of repetition, and that helps us remember it. It also helps carry it into us just a little bit more. But it also can clarify meaning. So I'll show you some examples of that as we go. Here is what we call synonymous parallelism. That's the most common kind where you say the same thing uh, in two different ways, but you get a little bit of extra meaning from it. So the ox knoweth his owner and the ass his master's crib. That's two ways of saying the same thing. Animals know who feeds them. But Israel doth not know. My people and my people in Israel, that's the same thing, doth not consider. So you see how he's saying the same thing twice in each case. Um, and uh, we'll look at this again. This is one that adds a tremendous amount more nuance of meaning, but it certainly adds emphasis, right? Uh, the fact that they really just aren't getting it. We'll come back to that one and, and look at how it is actually employing a couple of different uh, poetic devices there. Here's, here's a, a, another one, all right? Uh, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue hath muttered perverseness. That's from Isaiah 59. So you can see there that hands and fingers are synonymously parallel with each other, and blood and iniquity are. And then lips and tongue, and speaking lies and muttered perverseness. All right, so you can see that pair and this pair. But then we get a little added nuance meaning when you see that these are actually coupled with each other. He's saying that both, what causes you problem is both what you do and what you say, right? And, and that means that these are in, in parallel with each other. Lying and being and speaking perverse things is similar to having blood and iniquity on your hands. And that's a little bit of added layer of meaning when you see that he's comparing those things together, right? We get just a little bit more nuance out of that. Um, here's another one. Oh, that thou hast hearkened to my commandment, then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off, nor destroyed from before me. By the way, this is Abrahamic covenant in Memphis, but we're getting back to that on Friday. Uh, oh, I forgot I don't have that. Laser pointer so you couldn't see that. All right, this is Abrahamic covenant imagery. We'll get back to that on, on Friday. Um, but you can just see again how, I, I, here's one of those nuances that I love. He is equating peace and righteousness. That's, I mean, it's, it's probably not shocking news to you, but, but it's worth thinking about. 
there's some nuance of meaning there that can be actually pretty profound and important um, to, to equate peace and righteousness. So that's some of the things that can happen as you look at, at synonymous parallelism. You've also got antithetical parallelism, which is when you have opposite ideas contrasted with each other. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. So you can see that the green is in, uh, they're in antithetic parallelism with each other, willing and obedient as opposed to refusing or rebelling. And these are the contrasting blessings and curses. You eat the good of the land, or you're devoured with the sword. By the way, that's also Abrahamic imagery. I'm trying to make myself wait till Friday, but I'm so excited. All right, anyway. Um, so that, the contrast often also teaches important things, right? That uh, you can either prosper or you can be destroyed, depending upon whether you're willing and obedient, which is what you're supposed to do under the covenant, or if you're breaking the covenant by refusing and rebelling. Now, here's, we've already looked at the, the, uh, parallel, or the synonymous uh, parallelism in here, but this is these pairs being antithetic, right? So ots and as, knowing who feeds them, is in parallel with each other. And Israel not knowing and not considering is in parallel with each other, but they're anti the two ideas that are antithetical to each other. And what he's trying to say is, dumb animals know who takes care of them. Why don't you know who takes care of you, Israel? What's wrong with you that you don't know that? Right, so that's, uh, th that's uh, the two of them being combined, and I think that's, that's fun to recognize. I think actually the scholars made up this phrase, emblematic parallelism, is just, like the symbolism, so I don't know, they just made this up, but we'll put it in because they made it up. So anyway, uh, I didn't make this one up. I make up my own stuff, but this one, someone else made up. Uh, and you're familiar with this one. Though your sins be as scarlet, they be white as snow. Be, uh, though they be red like crimson, they be as wool. So that's uh, emblematic meaning of their, their uh, symbolism. But you can see here, you've got, again, both synonymous and antithetical parallels mixed together. Sins and red and white as snow and wool uh, being, you can see this, two synonymous pairs and the two antithetical pairs. Oh, there it is. I had it color code right there. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Whoever put that in there. Actually, I should say that a couple of these slides uh, are were first created. I've, I've given them my own little things, but a couple of these slides with this uh, were first created by Victor Ludlow, and he's kind of shared them with me like 100 years ago when I was um, younger, and he was younger too. So, anyway, um, so there you can see synonymous and antithetical all, all working Okay, many of you have heard of a chiasmus, which is also known as an inverted parallelism. Uh, and Isaiah uses this a lot. And this is when you start out with a point and you work your way into a central point and then you work your way back out. All right, so uh, Isaiah and his call is told to make the heart of his people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. But you can see how we've got. A, B, and C, and then we call it C prime, B prime, and A prime as we work our way back out and how they're all in parallel with each other. Now, a chiasmus, even if you don't recognize it, and in a lot of these others, you'll recognize the nuances better if you recognize the parallelism. But even without it, you inherently recognize the, the contrasts, the, the emphasis comes apart across naturally because of the repetition, right? So a lot of this happens naturally. The point of a chiasmus, a simple chiasmus, is especially that central thought. And whether you recognize it or not, you intuitively understand that seems to be the most important point. But when you recognize it, it comes across all the, the more strongly. When you have a large chiasmus, then you've got the central thought, and then the next most important thoughts are the bracketing thoughts, the one that's at the beginning and the end. They kind of uh, frame how you understand everything else, and the, the center one is the most important one. All right. So here's another example. Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. I think this one was pointed out to me, and, and partially created by Don Perry. But anyway, um, so you can see this. The center is darkness. And so that's the most important point in this one, that without God, you're in darkness. But when God rises upon you, then you'll arise and shine and have brightness and light. Right? <laughs> and you get that just intuitively without recognizing the, the chiasmus, but you get it even more when you do. So I'll, I'll just say this. Uh, as I was 
writing my own commentary on Isaiah, uh, I, I got to a point of uh, chapters where it's like, there's so much repetition of the same idea. I wonder if we're looking at a chiasmus. And, and I started to look, and it's a huge chiasmus that I don't think has ever been identified before. I think my, my commentary is the first one to identify it. Absolutely huge. It's not, it, it, it's not like a, in a verse. It's chapter. Ideas of chapters creating the chiasmus. So this is that chiasmus. There'll be a quiz on this. You have to reproduce this. Um, where it goes, it spans from chapter 40 to chapter 57. Um, and, and that's a pretty big one, but it's, as I look at it, I think there's just no doubt at all. So look at the bracketing ideas here, that God comforts his people, but there is no comfort or peace, except for if you come, except for from God. And the central thought is God will save his covenant people. And God and a servant will save his covenant people. So if we were to look at the repeated themes in this chiasmus, it's this, the world cannot deliver, it's God can and will deliver, but we have to be keeping the covenant with God to be delivered, and if you're not keeping the covenant, then God will humble you, so you will keep the covenant, but the covenant is available to everyone, and God sends servants to help uh, people receive and keep the covenant so they can be delivered. Right? It's, this is from chapter 40 to 57, right? and this is the major themes of that chiasmus. Um, and when you think about it, in some ways, this is the message of Isaiah and the gospel. Right there. The world can deliver us, but God can as long as we make and keep covenants with him. Everyone should make that covenant, and when you do, then God will send a servant to save you. Uh, that's, that's pretty good stuff. So when you get to that section, chapters 40 through 57, um, these are the things that I would look for. The central theme is that God and his servants deliver those who keep covenant. Right? And the overarching themes that are highlighted at the beginning and the end, and, and really throughout, but especially the beginning and the end, that everyone is welcome to make the covenant, but deliverance only comes to those who both make and keep the covenant. Okay, we got a lot to do and not much time, so look for this. Um, another thing that I would say, and this is a, a bit of looking for. Uh, the manner of prophesying among the Jews, but I would say look for, for sections and, and continuity. So I'll talk about continuity in a minute, but, but Isaiah, there, there are sections in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah or whoever put his book together arranged it. Some of them are in chronological order, but sometimes they, they are out of chronological order to be in sections that, that work together. All right, so this will just give you an idea. This is my own idea of the structure of Isaiah that you may find helpful. Chapter one is the preface. It's actually like section one. Chronologically, that's not where it goes. It, it's should be about two-thirds through Isaiah chronologically, but it serves as an introduction to everything in the book, so it's, it's the chapter one. Then we get into chronological chapters, two through five, or what we call the, I would call the Pride of Covenant Cycle. We'll talk about that on Friday. Um, then we get Isaiah's Call, then more of the Pride of Covenant Cycle, and actually Isaiah's Call serves as, as kind of a fulcrum. It, it highlights the, the right way to do the, the, the covenant. Um, then you get an address to all of the nations, and then you're told that only the, and this address tells all the nations that destruction is coming, but you get a section where the righteous are promised that they'll be okay. Uh, and then he follows that with warning people that don't repent that they won't be okay. Then we get the impending destruction and the salvation of Judah, where he warns you are about to be destroyed. Then we get the historical story of them about to be destroyed and being saved. And then you get this huge chiasmus that I just told you about of servants and covenantal redemption. And 58, I think it's really important. It kind of represents a change of heart. They, they go through a change of heart, and then we get redemption and exaltation of Israel for the rest of Isaiah. So that, that's just a little bit helpful, I think, to kind of recognize those sections, and, and it just gives you an idea of how they kind of understand and frame the different things that you're reading. Okay, it's just an idea. You also want to look for continuity. And by this, I mean that often we have chapter breaks uh, or a chapter division that makes you think that that there's a division in the thought or a pause in the thought and there's not any pause in between the last verse of the chapter before it and the first verse of the next chapter. So often as I wrote my commentary, I just had to write. I'd say like maybe two-thirds of the chapters, I'd just say it. The first thing I'd say at the beginning of the next chapter, this is a continuation of the thought of the last verse. And so don't get confused by those chapter headings in there, all right? So uh, we're going to combine poetry, symbolism, and looking for sections or continuity just in, in one little example here. And you've probably seen this one before. This is where God says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, 
So again, he's using God as a scientist as an example of the very best that, that Israel has to offer, but they're not doing super well. And they walk with stretch forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making tinkling with their feet. We won't read the whole thing, but you're familiar with it. They, they've got bracelets and mufflers and bonnets and ornaments and rings and jewels and all sorts of stuff, right? Um, so what are they looking for? Well, what they, they, he makes it clear they're looking for is the attention of men. Right? And they're going about it the world's way. So this is kind of some of the symbolism. He's chosen all sorts of things. I don't think he really cares if anyone has jewelry or not. I think he's trying to use this as an example. They're using the world's ideas of how to be, think of themselves as valuable. And how do they think of themselves as valuable and validated? Well, if they can get the attention of men. And how do they do it? Well, the way the world. Drop, walk a certain way, dress a certain way, look a certain way, and you'll get that attention, right? But that's not trusting in God, and that's not going about things God's way. So as a result, that instead of what you want, instead of a sweet smell, you're going to smell bad. Instead of nice clothes, you're going to have torn clothes. And instead of having uh, nice hair, you'll be bald and uh, all sorts of things, right? But then look at this. What they want was men, but look what they get anyway. Verse 25. But your men are going to fall by the sword. And that might even work. So not only are you going to smell bad, but there's not going to be any guys to attract anyway. They're all going to die in war, and you're just going to sit in the gates and, and lament that. Right? So that's the end of chapter 3. But does it stop there? And the answer is no. Someone put this big chapter heading and this uh, you know, kind of summary here just to make you think that they don't go together. But look, and in that day, it's talking about the same day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by their name and take away our reproach. Why are they doing that? Because all the men die. I think he's saying there are seven women to one man. So if this is what you were looking for, if this was what, what was so important for you was to attract a whole lot of men, good luck is what he's saying. It's not going to work out for you. When you are searching for the world's values and going about it the world's ways, it sooner or later is not going to work out for you. That's the real message he's giving us here. And he's just using the daughters of Zion who have been, become worldly as an example of that. But this verse doesn't make very much sense if you don't read it in context of the verses right before it, and recognizing that all the men just died in battle. So, just an example of that, all right? There's some other literary devices. Um, oh, we need to hurry, okay. Uh, Isaiah often will set up court cases, all right? He'll indict Israel, and he'll, 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 say, he'll call for witnesses and say, everyone hear me, and I'm bringing a charge against Israel so that they know exactly what they've done wrong, all right? So here's one. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And then he says, I've nourished and brought up our uh, children, and they've rebelled against me. And this is when he says the oxen was his owner, and the ass's message crib, and so on. That's the charge against them, right? So he's calling for witnesses. Listen to me. Here is the charge I'm bringing against Israel. All right? Chapter 3. The Lord standeth up to plead and standeth to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof. For you have eaten up the vineyard and the spoil of the poor that is in your houses. What mean ye that you beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor, saith the Lord of hosts? So here is he standing up to plead and to bring a, a case of judgment against them. They have not been taking care of the poor the way they should. Right, that's a really frequent charge Isaiah brings. And when he talks about bringing judgment to people, what he usually is talking about is taking care of them. That's a phrase we, we get wrong a little bit as well, all right? Um, besides the court cases, he often will pronounce judgment. After he's presented the court case, he says, okay, here's, here's the verdict and the, and the penalty. These are often presented in what we call a woe oracle, meaning that they say woe unto the wicked, or woe unto whoever. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. That's the, the punishment that is given at the conclusion of the court case, as it were, all right, or the indictment. Or, woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that write grievousness which they have prescribed. To turn aside the need from judgment, and so on, these are the things that they've done wrong. And what, uh, here's the punishment. The uh, day of visitation, they're going to have desolation, and they'll bow down as prisoners, and the Assyrians are going to punish them. Right? That's the, the pronouncement of judgment against them once they've been pronounced uh, guilty after they've brought a court case against them. All right? So, we have, we get done at... at uh, 125, right? So we've got 15 minutes to do all the history of Israel. We can do that. Uh, we're just going to do a couple parts. So we're all right. But now we're going to focus on this, this history part, okay? And some key things. There are just a couple of key elements of history that if you know this, Isaiah is operating in his own world. 
His message is first and primarily to his own people. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. If you understand what's going on in his world, you can understand the way it's fulfilled in our day as well. But he is talking to people in his day, and you will understand him better if you understand what's happening in his day. And there are only a couple of key stories that you need to know and understand that will help all this make sense. So let's go through those, all right? Um, we used this yesterday for those of you who are here. This is just a chart to show you that Isaiah's ministry spans several kings of Assyria, all of the last kings of Israel. His ministry should actually go up here into the days of Manasseh, several kings of Judah. He ministers for a long time, so we need to know what happens during his day. All right? What's happening in the, in the larger region is one of the questions we have to ask ourselves. And what's happening, look at the dates here. The Syrian Empire is about 824 BC. I thought I had up here, hang on, let me see. I thought I had a chart with some dates in it. Yeah, how did that get All right. We want to do this first. Okay. These are some dates for Isaiah. Born roughly 770 BC. We don't know exactly when he's born. But somewhere around 770 BC, um, he receives his call around 740. That one we have a little bit better idea because it's in the last reign of King Uzziah. We've got a, a decent date, so he receives his call roughly around 740. Um, traditionally dies at about 690. Okay, he serves under all these kings. Ah, and number five, I don't know, some, something weird happened there. Uh, actually, I thought I modified. I don't know. Who knows what I'm doing? So, but with those dates in mind. Look at how we've got the Assyrian Empire is this big in 824, and it's this big in 671, and Isaiah's life is square in the middle of those. He lives as the Assyrian Empire takes over the area where he lives. And that's what much of what he will be prophesying about is, is concerning. Right? He's going to prophesy to Assyria and Babylon. He's going to prophesy to all the countries around here that will be taken over by him, and especially to Israel and Judah. Uh, this is, is the big event of his lifetime that he will prophesy about. So that's what's in the region. What's happening in Israel? Well, he will warn Israel. When he starts his ministry, Israel is doing okay. And by the time his ministry is about halfway through, Israel has been scattered and destroyed. I mean, destroyed and scattered. The one happened before the other. Um, uh, and so much of his ministry will be warning the kingdom of Israel, repent or you'll be destroyed. How about in Judah? Well, Judah comes under Assyrian domination during his lifetime, and then Hezekiah will rebel. We'll talk about this more in depth in a minute. Hezekiah will rebel, and, and Isaiah will guide him through that, and they will be almost destroyed, but miraculously spared at the last moment. Only Jerusalem, most of them are, miraculous, are, are destroyed. Um, uh, that is a big part, and you actually read that story. You did it in Come Follow Me a little while ago, but those same chapters are in Isaiah. Almost, almost word for word, not quite, but almost word for word, the same stuff you read in 2 Kings uh, 17 and 18 is Isaiah uh, 36 and 37, uh, because that story is so integral to what he's prophesying about. So, we'll talk more about this particular prophecy tomorrow, um, but I want you to get kind of the history of it, the, the behind it now, because it plays into a lot of Isaiah's prophecies. Uh, there, it's what we call the Syro-Ephraimite War. And it has to do with three kings, all right? You've got King Ahaz, who's also called Jerusalem, or the house of David. That's that part for the whole thing, right? Um, you've got King Rezin, who's called Aram, or Damascus, or son of Remaliah. And you've got King Pekah, or sorry, he's not son, son of Remaliah. Pekah's son of Remaliah. He's also called Ephraim and Samaria, all right? You've got these three kings. Well, what happens? Oh, I lost my laser pointer. Okay. What happens is... These two kings want to rebel against Assyria. Assyria is about to take them over. They want to resist them, and they feel like they can't do it on their own, so they form an alliance. But they feel like the two of them aren't strong enough either, so they want Judah to form the alliance. And the king of Judah, Ahaz, is not so sure he wants to, so uh, they will try and force him, all right? So that, oh, yeah, so they go to war against uh, and, and it's called the Syro Ephraimite War. Now, this brings up in Isaiah chapter 7 a really interesting choice. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the Emmanuel prophecy, but today let's talk about this choice that King Ahaz has given that is one of the major themes of Isaiah. Outside forces are squeezing King Ahaz. Right? He's got a huge empire coming, and he has two larger and more powerful kingdoms to the north of him. 
And his question is, should he do this? Should he trust in the power of the alliance? Should he trust that together with Israel and Syria, they can resist the Assyrians? Or should he trust in the power of Assyria? And say, I, I know Syria is going to conquer me, but they're going to anyway. Why don't I make myself voluntarily a vassal of them and ask them to get rid of these two kingdoms to the north that are, are going to uh, come in and, and destroy me? And that's what the world is telling him are his only two options. As far as his own thinking and, and the thinking of the world is, those are your two options. You're going to have to give in to either those two kingdoms to the north of you or to the empire of Assyria. He doesn't see any other options. All right? But he does have another option, and Isaiah will tell him what that option is. His option is, don't do anything, let God take care of it for you. Just trust in God, and he'll take care of it. That makes no sense to the world. No sense at all. But so often it is what God asks us to do. He tells us to do something that doesn't make sense, but he says, don't worry, I got it. Just you do what I ask, and I'll take care of it. And that's hard. It's too hard for Ahaz. Ahaz won't give in. Right, so even though Isaiah tells him this is what to do and gives him a sign, we'll talk about the Emmanuel prophecy sign tomorrow, um, Ahaz says nope, and he makes a, a, an alliance with Assyria. And as a result, his kingdom comes under Assyrian control. So much so that they can't bear it after a while, and his son Hezekiah will have to rebel against Assyria. All right? um, in the meantime, and this is one of those historical things that happens in uh, Isaiah's day that we really have to get. Uh, because Syria and Israel re uh, resist Assyria, they go to war. Syria is conquered pretty quickly in 732, and then, and then uh, this guy named Tiglath-Pileser III comes down in 732, and he conquers Israel. It's not a huge bath, but a pretty quick conquering, and he takes a big chunk of Israelites, and he takes them back to Assyria. And Israel is a vassal for a while, but they just can't take it. And we may often ask ourselves, why do they keep rebelling against these huge empires? Well, it's because of what's asked of them. First of all, they're asked to send a huge amount of tribute so that it's hard for them to even survive. They, most of their crops, most of everything they're getting, uh, usually around the 50% mark, something like that, they have to send to Assyria. But worse than that, they have to send their sons and daughters. Every year, they have to send people to serve in the army and to serve as servants, and sometimes not the kind of servants you want your daughters to be. And when you are having a hard time surviving, and when your children keep being taken from you, after a while, and it usually doesn't take that many years, even though you think you may probably have no chance of surviving, you just can't take it anymore. And that's what happened with Israel, and later what happened with Judah and Hezekiah. So after a few years, Israel rebelled again. So they came in and conquered them again. And this time, because it was the second time they had to go to war against them, they, they meant business. And they took away huge amounts, including most of the elite of Israel and brought them back to Assyria, and from there they scattered throughout the world. And this is the scattering of Israel, the gathering of which we're involved in right now. And I think President Nelson would like us to be aware of that. Um, that we're, we're in the midst of gathering. This is a 2,500-year covenant cycle. We'll talk about that on Friday. But um, uh, this is God continuing to work with Israel after having to humble them. He brings them back in the, the, the gathering. But this is the scattering of Israel. That's a huge part of what happens during Isaiah's ministry, and he addresses it. And it's part of why Isaiah is going to talk about the gathering of Israel more than anyone else, because he witnesses the scattering of Israel. He warned and warned and warned and pled and pled and pled, and they didn't listen, and then they were scattered, and so now he's going to have to talk about the gathering. All right? Let's talk for just a few minutes about Hezekiah. Um, during, before Hezekiah's day, Jerusalem, and some of you, this is a review if you're with me on Monday, but uh, Jerusalem was only this size. We've got about 8,000 people in them. All right? Partway through Isaiah's day, Jerusalem mushrooms to this size, and it's 30,000 people. So you have some from like 1,000 B.C. to 730 B.C., it's 8,000 people. From 730 to, say, 710, 30,000 people. Huge growth. Why? Well, because the northern tribes have just been had war going on as Assyria came in, and a whole bunch of them fled down to the south, and there, these are refugees. Jerusalem has more northern tribe people in it than it has southern tribe people in it, and they're all refugees. This is the most likely time for Lehi's family to have moved down there. There, there were other times when people moved from the north to the south, but this is when the biggest movement happened, so it's the most likely time when Lehi's family, that they're from the tribe of Manasseh, moved to Jerusalem. A few years later, um, by about 700, uh, you've got 
another 10,000. This is because Sennacherib, king of Hezekiah's rebelled, and Sennacherib, king of Assyria, has gone through and is destroying all of Judah, and the people are leaving those cities and coming to Jerusalem. All right? So Hezekiah has to do all sorts of things because he is rebelling against Assyria. He builds this huge wall uh, to encompass all. So this is the old part. Everything in here is new stuff that Hezekiah has to protect. So he builds this huge wall. It's all this area out here, most, most of what you can see there. Here's the remnants of that wall. It's a great big wall. We call it the broad wall. It would have been this high, and it goes lower than this, by the way. That's not the original ground level, and it would have been that high. Um, and Isaiah actually gets after him for this, for, for, fix, for making a big wall, and he breaks down the houses as he makes a wall, and he, and he digs a big ditch. Here you can see the remains of the house that he broke down as he built the wall. Um, and he talks about uh, building a, a ditch to keep water for them. But this is what Isaiah tells them. You've not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. So his point, and he also makes an alliance with Egypt, all right? And his point isn't that you shouldn't build walls, and it's not that you shouldn't bring in water to the city, and it's that you shouldn't make an alliance with Egypt. It's that that's what you're trusting in. What you should have done is ask me, and you should have trusted in me. So Isaiah warns Hezekiah about this. Now, for those of you who were with me yesterday, I'll remind you that there's a tradition that, that, that uh, Isaiah is actually Hezekiah's father. So he, he gets his ear right, but Hezekiah is given the same choice his father was given. Are you going to trust in God or in what the world tells you was? And Hezekiah listens. And he says, okay, we keep doing that stuff, but what we really need to work on is repenting, getting rid of idolatry, renewing our covenant. And that's what he gets the people to do and as a result, they are miraculously spared. And that's a fantastic lesson that Isaiah rejoices over. And then we get a real change. That, that's all over by the, by the end of chapter 39. And from chapter 49, you get warnings about Babylon, the next power on, on the horizon. But also lots of rejoicing because they have repented and kept coming. Uh, Understanding those historical things will really help us uh, understand Isaiah. So, uh, I was going to show you some pictures. I guess I'll still show you some pictures. Uh, I think we're out of time, but uh, we have one minute. So, uh, here's the tunnel that he built. Okay, that's, that's exciting. Tunnel, tunnel, tunnel. Uh, oh, yeah. And so, after this is what I want to end on. Uh, after that, Isaiah just gives us lots of images of hope. Lots and lots of images of hope. Where God says, I will rise up, and I will be exalted, and I will lift myself up, and the sinners will be afraid. But he that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth oppression and so on, he shall dwell on high. That's Isaiah's real message. That when we keep our covenant, God will redeem us. He will take us away from our oppressors and redeem us and exalt us on high. That's the message we can get from the history that we understand when we study Isaiah. That's what he's really going to get. And I testify of that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.